Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. Hi, Lee. Hey, Ryan. So today we have with us a very exciting guest because he is a sound professional. We don't have enough sound professionals on this podcast. We've got Dean Hurley. Um, We've known Dean for a long time. Uh, Dean's a sound designer, a re-recording mixer, a composer, um, best known for his work with David Lynch, as well as other people. Um, welcome. Thanks, Thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. This is exciting because, like I said, we don't get to talk about sound as much as I would like. For um, sure. No, we argue about that a lot, actually, because most of them are about picture, which is way more important. Not, <laughs> not today. Not today. Not today. Yep. Today's sound reigns supreme. Um, I guess, you know, I mentioned you're a sound designer, composer, re-recording mixer. I want to get into your background and sort of like where you came from, what drew you to this kind of work. But I think that there's a lot of mystery around some of those terms, particularly like re-recording mixer. Can you, in a nutshell, you know, give us the kind of an overview of what you do? Yeah, sure. So I I guess what you're alluding to is the term mixer in feature films is often split between sound mixer and re-recording mixer. Yes. Uh, sound mixer is typically the production the location recordist who's recording, you know, lavalier microphone and boom microphone signals and mixing them into a multi-channel mixer on set. And a re-recording mixer, that was a term, I guess, that came about in the 30s maybe, where essentially, you know, with the movie King Kong or whatever, they, they, they were re-recording, you know, and mixing or orchestral sources along with pre-recorded sound effects along with um, the actor's dialogue so it get the movie the film gets re-recorded into a another optical source or a, a mag stock source or whatever today digitally um, but yeah that's where those ter- two terms sort of diverge totally and as a re-recording mixer then you're responsible for actually mixing the film as I think we would generally think of mixing rather than sound mixer being the person on set. Yeah, yeah. So essentially the re-recording mixer is is where all those sound sources sort of get funneled to in the final decisions. It's usually one of the last uh, steps of the process when you're working on a film um, where uh, everything from the composer's uh, stems, you, you know, you have this Pro Tools supersession of, uh, you know, your production sound, what the Foley team has provided in terms of the re-recorded uh, effects and props for, for Foley recordings. You've got the sound effects stems. You've got background, you know, uh, units. You've got uh, all those things come into, funneled into uh, a giant session so that the mixers, typically maybe two mixers on a film, and the director can all make decisions about precisely how loud, how quiet, uh, you know, all the different uh, considerations that go into sort of balancing a film and and crafting crafting the sonic environment, the sonic world, which is also where the term sound design comes from because it's essentially like, 
you know, you're like an interior decorator for this, the sonic um, presentation of the world of the film and deciding, you know, what what is selected to be heard, what is off off screen outside the, the visible camera frame. And so, yeah. I, There's like overlap, right, between those sometimes, re-recording yes. mixer and sound designer. Yeah, I can see now I have to kind of step outside my my own uh, indoctrination of what this all means to me because I think it is confusing because there's especially today and you know with the with the uniformly digital world of of sound so much of these these terminologies are getting cross-pollinated and you've got single practitioners that are now doing multiple roles of what typically was diced up and segregated back in the day. So in any given situation these days, you could have the sound designer, the re-recording mixer, the supervising sound editor, even the sound mixer in some weird cases. Or even the director in David Lynch's case. (laughs) Yeah. So there's definitely been... Uh, a couple of scenarios where I've done all those roles, you know, um, but it, uh, yeah, this digital realm does start to blur the lines, uh, you know, um, and I probably, I probably experienced that probably more than most in terms of just, I mean, in terms of, yeah, working for David, uh, Lynch, his whole thing was bringing me into this realm of you're my sound guy. You know, it was just like sound guy. Like that's that's that was all my enco- term. All encompassing sound guy. <laughs> all yeah. encompassing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it uh, further blurred those lines. But I think in general, I think other industry practitioners would agree that with with digital audio, digital workstations, and the the morphing of an evolution of the craft has streamlined. And even picture editors now, I'm noticing, are doing a lot of what a post-production sound uh, practitioner would do. I've seen picture edits, you know, like offline, Avid offline edits now that are coming through, and I'm like, damn, this dialogue sounds incredible. Like, the noise floor is incredible. And the picture editor is like, yeah, I had in- instances of RX on 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 tracks. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit, well, that's my job, you know? Like, yeah. But, um it's it's very fascinating. You know, and picture editors too also getting they're doing like visual effects comps with after effects. Like the digital world is definitely merging roles in in film production. And I think I think that's really cool cuz I've always kind of come from the philosophy of the you know, I I'm proud of being a master of nothing and <laughs> being a jack of all <laughs> trades, you know. Have you been on the set during some of these things that you end up mixing or recording or are you pretty much at the point where you're just given the stuff later or, and is there a discussion about these things? If you're not on the set, like there must be pre-discussions about what the sound mix is going to entail and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'll I'll start it with (laughs) my first, my first job with Lynch was on Inland Empire. And that one was a very unique film because it, started as his internet experiments, you know, and shooting piecemeal, and it wasn't a feature film yet, and it sort of um, evolved into that. But um, but that was the, you know, ground zero start of my job, and I, I was brought into the role as, you know, your, 
I'm hiring a sound man. You're my sound engineer. You know, you're my sound guy. And so I found myself being the sum of the location recordists for the film, which um, I'd say a majority of it, but not everything. Um, you know, all the good sounding stuff. <laughs> but um, uh, that was crazy. And I quickly learned that I never ever wanted to do that again and incredible respect for the people and the um engineers who do production location recording because it it is such a unique skill set but i i quickly learned that like i wanted to be in the studio i wanted to be as your opening indicates in the windowless room you know like that was where i felt comfortable and uh and i found that later like it it, it helps to have a really good dialogue and relationship with the location recordist because you kind of – you want to have a couple – just a couple key shorthand conversations where you're like, okay, w- what are you doing here? Okay, definitely want we're gonna, there's going to be playback, so you definitely want to split that out, you know. Mm. Um, things like that when there's specific considerations. But a lot of times it's like I don't like hanging out on set because you get – a lot of times, a, a lot of wrong indicators in terms of sonically what you want to build the world later. It's it's great having a, a, a clean slate of not knowing anything, not knowing or not being hyper-focused on your experience of, yeah, I remember I, I leaned up against this wall and it was made of, you know, plywood and, you know, and uh, it, those things I can only imagine would subtly influence or maybe constrict your creativity in terms of imagining you know what 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 is going right so rather than like you would tend to like recreate the world maybe even subconsciously that you experienced on set rather than create a different sonic environment but i have been on on i mean with with twin peaks and stuff uh douglas axtell was the production recordist and he and i had conversations i i definitely there was like a short stint of me going to set for certain things like all the roadhouse performances and um trying to uh facilitate certain moments you know um but for the by and large if i never set foot on a set again i'd be totally happy you know does it spill over the other way like do do the people who recorded the the tracks on the set later get involved in the mixing or the the sound design not at all at least in my case and everything that I know about, which I have to commend them because, you know, and maybe that's just my personality type of being at the re-recording stage is uh, being a hyper-control freak. I, I mean, it must take a lot to just work really hard on your on your tracks and then send them off and just hope that, you know, somebody else isn't, fucking up the eq or whatever you know i don't know or totally. or hearing your stuff later and being like god i i remember on playback these sounded way better <laughs> you know I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know but um i think by and large in in a perfect world all that stuff is getting improved upon you know but yeah it's funny you mentioned that you'd be happy to never be on set again because i had a sort of a similar experience in that like i got my start as a sound recordist doing industrials and things like that. And I just despised being on set, one, for all the waiting around, two, for like getting up early in the morning. And then 
primarily because I just hated holding a boom. It was absolutely no fun for me. Sounds exhausting, actually. It was so much work. It's so hard, and this the stakes are so high, you know? But yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm not against hard work, right? But to me, the the, the, the delineation became how heartbreaking and devastating it was to basically, like the definition of your job is you're going to show up to a place where best case scenario, you're you're not going to get 100% great work. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. best case scenario, you're going to be like 80%, you know, it's pretty good. If, if just that <laughs> yep. fucking plane wouldn't have gone past, you know? Right. And that just like crossed my circuits a little and I'm like, I want to improve things. I don't want to show up and just be knocked down by all these unknown factors and have people looking at me, scratching their heads, being like, man, it doesn't sound very good. It's like, it's not my fault. <laughs> right, right. Or have re-recording mixers cursing you. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to be able to help and save bad audio. And somebody be like, man, this sounded really shitty, but it sounds less shitty now. It's like... Yeah, we really did something today, guys. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in the case of Lynch, like when you when you get all the recordings and they're done shooting, like what's the process like? Does he say, okay, here's the story and this is what we're going to do? Or do you kind of go to town first and do a path? How does that all work? It's a big question and it, and it can work many, many different ways. And I'm sure it's different for TV episodes versus movies. I mean... Is that not true too? Yeah, it is true, and I'll tell you why. Like with with Twin Peaks, you know, it's like an eighteen episode thing that was in principal photography for like a year. So the editorial team and and myself were working on things as they were still shooting, and that probably by his design wouldn't go that way if they were doing a normal feature-length movie because it's a much more uh, manageable amount to to perhaps just wait to start editorial until they're done filming, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so with Twin Peaks, it was interesting because there was a lot of um, editorial going on so that when he came back to begin editing himself, it wasn't this mammoth-like... Okay, let's uh, let's start assembling. You know, scene one, take one. You know, yeah. Um, so I don't even know if I can answer your your question about how it goes, but um, because it's gone several different ways, but uh, but to just oversimplify it, you know, it's that stuff starts with picture editorial. You know, assembling scenes, um identifying takes, building moments, things like that. And what I like to do in in my job is have like one eye on that process. See how it's going. You know, other films for other directors that I've worked on, I t- you know, historically you you enter into the the creative conversation with a rough cut. You know what I mean? Mm. And um, I do find that it is helpful to see how things evolve and to see considerations and to follow, even to have, just for interest's sake, follow the creative 
thought process and get aligned with a project mm. that way and how it's evolving in their considerations. Because all the inf- like when I start a new project, it's like I want all the all the information I can possibly get to align myself on a DNA level with the project and the people making the project. Because there's different different personalities, different considerations, different goals. Like I want to know the goal, you know, of what they're after, you know, because that all that stuff informs like how I'm going to go about doing my job. So if I get little instances on the editorial process and starting to see how the editor is doing things or maybe temp music that they're reaching for to, to, to basically rough in these ideas, all that stuff helps to tell me as the baton gets passed where to, where I'm running to, you know, with the people involved, you know. And one of the things, because I worked for David for such a long stretch of time exclusively, is that I align myself so well with his sensibility that I I can guess, you know, you start to anticipate exactly what they're going to reach for, what they're going to do when they say, I want X or give me some low mood. You know, you know what he means by that. And in the last five years working for other people, there is a process of trying to get acclimated really quickly to what their tropes are, stylistically where they're coming from. Things that worked in an old paradigm with one director do not work in a new paradigm mm. or don't just, just don't match up with the another filmic world that you're you're working on. So it's not like you can rehash all your your tricks, you know. <laughs> Um, which as a director, you, you can, because the more you keep doing yourself, the more your world gets enriched and that is in, enriched and defined and, and becomes its own, like it's, it's almost coming out of relief. And that's where we get the term Lynchian because he has done himself for so long. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But as a, as a practitioner, when you're working on many, many different things, you're you're having to be more of a chameleon, you know, and and sort of supplement all these different visions. And and that's interesting to me, but there have been times with like new pair-ups where I'm like, this is really difficult. Like I, if David was here, I if he was doing this, I know how he would do this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And and it makes me sort of salivate for that, you know, the comfort zone. I think like, you know, even just working with him on picture, I feel like when you said that you can anticipate how he's going to react to something or how he's going to think about it, I kind of know now if they're sitting in a room with him doing color, like what he's, yep. what he's, and you know, they each get, at least for me, they each get easier where yes. I can kind of foresee that being too colorful, that being too bright or what have you. Although he does throw plenty of curl balls. I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's why I think throughout film history, all those unique pair-ups between DPs and directors, composers and directors, as that stuff blossoms and they work again and again and again, you get some really... They're they're crafting these whole unique flavor experiences of life where when you see a trailer and it's X-director, X-composer... 
and you're like, oh, wow, this is going to, like, and you're sitting in the theater and you're like, this feels really good. It feels like an old friend because you've experienced that partnership for a while, yeah. you know? Totally. Yeah. And um, I think that's the beautiful thing about film because there's so many collaborators and practitioners. And when they do get to do a string of things together, it's really, really cool because you see the human relationships on screen, you know? Yeah. Um Back to you a little bit, like, you know, is there an aspect, seeing as you were brought in and have worn a lot of different hats uh, mm. in the sound world, like, is there an aspect to it that attracted you to it? Is there an aspect that you enjoy most? Yeah, I'll tell you what, um, the kind of winding path that I took was, uh, I think I started to get interested in going to school for it via animation and, and visual art. Like, I was, a you know, like, a visual artist, like, in high school, and that was my focus, and animation was, like, making the move, and, you know, that was very interesting. So I ended up going to this, um, this college, UMBC. It's in Baltimore, Maryland. And um, I went there because they were one of two or three colleges in the United States that had a, an Oxbury optical printer, like a 16 millimeter optical printer. And that was like, that's where I want to go because I want to work on an optical printer. So in going there, making my animation films and using the optical printer, I realized like I just was the most jazzed to be putting the soundtrack to them on, you oh, know, at the, at the in process. And, um, and so I became a little more hyper-focused to the sonic realm. And then, you know, as, as sort of life starts to set in and you start to stand on the precipice between, you know, jumping into the real world, you're like, oh, fuck, what, no, what am I, what am I actually going <laughs> to do and make money at? You know, um, I thought, well, maybe this sound thing is, is something I should pursue and put all my eggs in, in that basket because naturally that's what I've been excited about I kind of burned out on visual art. Like I'm a very hyper-focused and per perfectionist style visual artist. And it really kind of started to turn sour for me. But the thing that was fresh was the sonic realm of recording bands and things like that. And I felt like I had so much more to learn in that arena. So cut to... Um, like moving out to LA, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, but um, I got an internship at uh, this place called Sound Deluxe. And um, there's a bunch of supervisors there. I made a had a relationship with this supervisor named Mark Steckinger, who, who was awesome. And I started to become indoctrinated into that world and that way of thinking about things, which was kind of what I alluded to earlier, which is a very segregated, like... Um, okay, you're going to be a sound editor. Uh, we've got, you know, this big tent pole movie coming in and, and you're going to, you you have the <laughs> the the privilege of, of cutting all the background vehicles for this film, you know? <laughs> and I remember thinking early on, like, yeah, this is uh, kind of not what I thought it was going to be, you know? <laughs> but, um, but I started to admire all the supervisors because I'm like, I, I would want to be involved with everything, not just being a, a cog, like, you know, chiseling in, you know, every time a car drives by in the background, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but it was all interrupted and all credit is due to David because as soon as I started working for him, it was like all that was out the window and there was no consideration for that way of thinking of this sort of Henry Ford factory line assembly mm. way of making something because, you know, every, he's the poster guy for Renaissance hands and everything. And so he was just like, you're my sound man. You're going to do everything sound. You know, here's the studio. I was actually hired to run his recording studio, which it, it wasn't even like a, you're going to be working on sound for my movies or anything like that. It was just like he has this, you know, $2 million, like amazing THX certified, like uh, dubbing stage um, on his compound. And it's got, you know, drum isolation room, you know, vocal booth, because he does music, he does sound, everything. So it was just kind of like he, he needs somebody to, like, be the the permanent tech for that, you know? That's where I met you, I think, in that room. Really? Yeah, because I I remember, when there, are there timpani drums in there and stuff like that? And um, There's like, a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot, of, like, or, different organs and keyboards and... yeah. I just remember a lot of gear, but I think that's where I met you. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but yeah. I remember being that that room is a that room is a place you want to spend time. Oh yeah, and and it is a very very magical room. Like being in that room for thirteen like uninterrupted years, it's like uh, having left that full time position and now coming back occasionally. When I step into that room, it's just like. It's like hugging a, a, a long-lost relative. You know, it's wild. <laughs> but it is incredibly, I mean, like all recording studios, I feel like have a sort of a sacred quality about them. There's something, you know, I mean, I, I think sacred spaces in general have always had a had a sensibility for acoustics, like the way churches were built to have seven-second reverb time and, you know, a recording studio, an acoustically neutral space that you walk into, it's very meditative because all of a sudden there's nothing putrefying your 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 thoughts and your world. It makes you aware of your own body because suddenly all yeah. the sounds that you're making are amplified in the way that are masked by the real world. And... And that's a really unique experience that a lot of people don't get, you know? I mean, it's like, it's crazy how we go through this world, like, sleeping, you know? And our, our little microphones are on all the fucking time. And you can't turn them off. I sleep with earplugs every night because— I do, too. Oh, me, too. I can't rest if I can hear things. Yeah. And it's, it's super powerful— uh, but what what does that do to us? And what does it do for like for me to like sit? I don't know that I could work in a in a like a normally like a like Lee's office right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. I think they uh, something just happened outside the street. So <laughs> yeah, but but like uh, yeah, all that stuff is very interesting. But that but yeah, his room that he that he made he built it, is incredible. And man, deep deep respect for those spaces because. Oh man, they're they're awesome, you know. Especially recording studios that we've all come to love and define sounds by, like the the Motowns of the world, the Stacks, the Capitol, the you know all these places that now we we subconsciously, even people who don't know anything about audio, are like 
hearing specific echo chamber rooms that are sonic right. fingerprints that come with a feeling. You know, I remember when I when I took a tour of Motown and the guy, you know, the docent or tour guide was like, you know, doing his normal spiel that I, I think he's probably done like a, a zillion times and got to the um, the attic echo chamber and he's like, you may recognize this. You know, he clapped his hands <laughs> and you, you hear it kind of just trail up into that attic echo chamber and, you, and you're like, holy fuck, I do recognize that, you know? <laughs> like, that's a sonic fingerprint that is is incredible. And just thinking how subconsciously all those rooms and everything in music that we've listened to like have been ingrained in us is pretty, pretty fascinating. Like Sound City, you know, all those people that went to record in this right. horrible place in Van Nuys and dealt with all of that just to have something about the acoustics of that room that made them all want to record there, which is... Yeah. And those recordings of all those albums, they have a similarity that is warm and inviting that at least um, at least recognizable too. Well, this is a good segue because one of the things I want to talk about is signal chain on the patina of time. Like like what you just mentioned about Sound City. There's a certain Neve board. There's a certain, you know, uh, acoustic architecture of that room Dave Grohl in that documentary talks mm-hmm. about putting the drums in a certain right. spot you know and there's a certain sonic fingerprint that happens from the signal flow and I think that like one of the things about I was having a discussion a long time ago about somebody because there's this record label Dap, Daptone Records which is I think Brooklyn based or whatever which it's all like uh, revival soul kind of stuff, like Charles Bradley, Sharon Jones. And um, somebody was talking to me like, yeah, it's uh, that must be really hard, you know, making a record with that gear. And I thought, no, no, it's incredibly easy because that stuff is, it's built like tanks, you know, and... And it's simple to use, isn't it? If you're trying to emulate, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're trying to emulate an era... You just need to carefully curate your gear selection, and boom, it's there. Mm. If you like, ha, like so much of of that sound might come from the particular style of spring reverb in an amp. Um, it's not necessarily the console so much as it is the choice of guitar amp, and uh, maybe even if you're trying to emulate like a like a, a slap echo a la Sam Phillips or whatever, you're talking about two Ampeg tape recorders um, that are doing that slap echo that if you analyzed it would be like a, I don't know, like 114 milliseconds or something like that. But like that is the sort of slap sound because of the physical distance between record and playheads. Mm. So if you're trying to emulate that, you know, figuring out the distance of how it was originally created is going to give you all the sort of pieces to unlock. So I guess what I'm saying in a long form is um, I was arguing with somebody that it was, somebody was saying it was easier to make records with Pro Tools than it is with vintage gear. And I said, no, in my humble opinion, it's the other way around. Because with Pro Tools now and, and a lot of digital recording you're given a blank slate you're given essentially every single 
uh, preamp and mixing channel strip emulation available right. throughout time. And you have to make your selections as to what you employ where the the system that you curate and, and create with a with a with a vintage style setup gives you this automatically baked in sonic fingerprint and you have to now nowadays you have to consider and craft it all from from ground zero of what you want you know what i mean which as you develop your taste it's easy but starting out it's harder because you know we don't know what what we want or what our tastes are yeah. you know there's like an option paralysis thing there with pro tools i think and then if you have every waves plugin or every whatever uad plugin or something emulation of every board and every compressor every pull tech ever made i think that it can be very difficult to figure out what goes with what and why certain things work together but in those vintage studios and when you're dealing with that sort of limited subset of gear that you would be able to afford in a studio, you wouldn't have, you know, a Fairchild and everything else, every other compressor, probably. You'd probably have the real thing. You'd have the... That's why I'm saying that you wouldn't actually be able to... Most studios wouldn't have every... Like Apple Studios, for example, Abbey Road had a certain very famous set of gear, you know, yeah. that they still sort of use. And it largely defines the sound you know yeah. it, it at least gets them on the track towards what the sound is going to be it's amazing what you know the variety of sounds that you can get out of a bunch of the same gear i think however there is like there's like a soul or something almost not to get too far whatever away from technical things but it does impart something almost intangible you know the sum total of those processors yeah yeah i i i agree and Speaking of Abbey Road and everything, like I, I one time I assisted Jeff Emmerich um, on a McCartney DVD mix, and we were dubbing that at um, the Village in uh, Santa Monica, and you know, of course, he comes in and he gets to sort of order up because the Village has like you know, Poltex and. Um, you know, 1176 is like on like a little, they wheel them in different rooms so they're not anchored to one room. So anyways, I see what he kind of orders up in terms of his his recipe, you know. He he wants, you know, you start to see, okay, he's, you know, 1176 on vocals and bass, got the d distressor, he's got his gates here, here, and here, he's got his Pultex on master bus, and, and then, you know, going home and playing with that recipe and playing with the attack and release things, you're like, oh, that's, there. there's that, that sort of Jeff Emmerich sound is, you know, getting that attack super late on the 1176. So the drums kind of have that thwack girth, right. you know? So you learn the, the recipe based on, you learn recipes in digital based on practical, uses of of the older gear you know what i mean but the the possibilities are limitless and i think the more you do it the more you learn as an individual uh engineer what you what you like and what you don't like you know what i mean but if you had motown studios with the signal path in intact you know many different engineers could come in and yet still render the same sonic right. quality, you know? 
and and this leads me to and to the the restoration and I guess film history sort of aspect of it is I am super fascinated with having traveled through these eras now where you start to see formats come about and disappear. If you think about um where we were and in terms of like let's say the 80s and 90s when a lot of people were experiencing films on VHS and you're thinking about the signal path of that of you've got your production sound recorders recording on magnetic nagra you've got that nagra then being dumped to mag stock you've got that stuff being edited and into units and then redubbed onto a single magnetic master and then that is created created a like an an optical rendering on the film print and then by the time it makes it to VHS you know how much saturation has occurred from a generational thing and it literally dawned on me a few years ago how my sonic ear and tuning of what I like and what I want to hear is layers of that saturation it's a similar thing with with Motown drums because it's like you listen to those drums and it sounds like they're incredibly sad. I mean, they're distorted. Let's not beat around For the sure, bush yeah. here. But it's like it's wild and it's exciting. And that's what made all those records it made their needles physically jump, you know, because they're they're how do you get more level? and more excitement distort it. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, guitar distortion, electric guitar day one, you know, pushing that amp is just like so exciting. And the harmonic distortion, the 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 even order harmonic distortion that that colors it in a way, I realized that like, like going back and listening to like, I got super obsessed recently with... um with uh, maybe this faux pas in your guys' world, but fan restorations. Have you heard about this stuff? Mm-mm. Like you, the Star Wars kind of thing? Well, it's. I feel it probably started around that, right? Mm-hmm. But, and the concept there is simple. Everybody knows that story now because right. people are trying to <laughs> sort of insert themselves and say, hey, you know, we don't like what a creator's doing here can I just goddamn see what I saw in the theater in 77, please? So you've got fans sourcing like reels, the best reels of the existing prints and then scanning that and not, and purposefully not doing, uh, well, they they had like two versions. They had like a a noise reduction version and one without because they knew how particular people were with that yeah. stuff but what you're getting is, and they would only do color correction per reel they wouldn't hmm. do scene by scene and I think that's like the way film timers used to do it exactly and I think that's an interesting delineation because they're drawing a line in the sand and they're saying we're going to preserve uh, w- you know what an audience experienced because there, there's got to be a way to go back to what an audience experience. It's an interesting thing, Dean, because it's the same. I mean, you're talking about the original source versus how it gets to, say, a VHS. But, you know, both sound and picture were going through the same thing where, you know, no one ever 
got to see an original negative projected. Right. They saw three generations later from a print. So we've got this negative that we all want to do because it's the best and it's the cleanest and it doesn't have any of the printing problems that, but at the same time, I don't think the filmmakers ever got to see that information right. before and would they want to see it? I mean, maybe makeup is different. I think the same thing with sound. You have to, you really are starting with a source that maybe didn't, people didn't never have heard before because they've only heard it on their AM radio for so many years, especially, yeah. you know, Motown. But it, I mean, it- it even goes further than just, I mean, I think there's an important delineation I want to say first between um, the media that a piece of something, film, music, whatever it is, exists on and what we choose to restore um, and what is best there. Obviously, you know, there's a lot to talk about there, but there's also, I think, an interesting distinction between what you experience listening to that and what you would experience if you were to go to a theater or something like that. I know this right. dude in Italy who is, you know, great audio restoration guy. And um, he has this, like, pet project where he goes around and um, basically makes these impulse responses of famous old theaters that still exist, right? And goes as far as to use speakers that would have been used in those theaters and that sort of thing, and then capture the impulse responses of the speaker responses and that kind of thing to try to accurately represent what a theater would have sounded like in 1938 or 1945, that kind of thing. And then, I mean, I think that's a very interesting question. I don't think personally that it plays as much into our restoration philosophy because there's a ton of variability there wasn't, I mean, there's the Academy Curve and a lot of kinds of stuff that attempted to standardize playback, but every room's going to sound different and there's no, there's no, you know, baseline there. Exactly. Right. Also, say, the like, creator's not there to speak for exactly. any of the decisions that yep. newly get made. Right. It's totally out of the hands of the creator once it gets to the theater, right? Yeah. So we've already just ventured into this territory of Pandora's box because, and it's like, where do you define things? Because, are we trying to preserve the way it sounded on an Altec system in a right. Italian movie house in, in, in such and such year? It's like, well, that doesn't account for anything of what you, me, or Lee is, is interested in experiencing. But, but at the same time, like I think the first time this concept uh, was presented to me was around an eraser head. Uh, MoMA was going to make a print of a racer head. And I think that's probably what what was used in the in the release of it, maybe. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, well, they were the ones that housed all the film, too. So they were the ones kind of okay. keeping, the, keeping the film going for a while before we got to it. So when they, when MoMA was going to strike this new print, David was like instinctively said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you want to get the... Um, we, we, you know, Alan Splett and I remade a stereo mix of Eraserhead in 1990. You want to get that one for the print. And MoMA said, no, no, we, we want the mono soundtrack. We, we're, we're making an artifact of what audiences experienced in the late 70s. That's what we're interested in. And apparently, apparently the same thing happened with Taxi Driver because it was like, you know, the, the question of like, what was the final scene with the blood or they bleach skipped it to kind of make it less yeah. red or yep. something yeah. like that. 
So that was also another distinction for MoMA. It's like, no, no, we want the version that played in theaters because it's like it's a conservation thing as opposed to – and I think this this question comes to the forefront with um, the digital world because you've got – think about news now as, as – I like would rather all, not. as digitally but like you read an article and what's the temptation to go back and just alter a few facts you know Mm. that were gotten wrong that now while everybody goes back to reference something that's wrong i mean the same thing is happening on a subtle level with um you know streaming services and and you know it's happening in the music world a lot where new masters are just being invisibly replacing old versions of things you know you've got an extreme example like like you know looney tune like kanye like just uploading like completely new mixes un unrequested or unannounced with new verses from people and that really is is nuts because you've you've got a an album there was always this point where somebody a creator releases something to the public and, you know, we all kind of wax poetic about that's when it stops becoming theirs and start to be owned by right. popular culture or whatever. And um, and now that that line is blurred and versions and iterations just subtly change over time. So where is the point to go back and reference how, you know, how – I mean, that's probably falls uh, – I mean, yeah, along. I was going to say that's what we do all the time. And yeah. You know, not not just the sonic fidelity matching of the original versus now, but also the content. Because over time, things get taken out or lost or s- lines get chopped. I mean, whatever it is. So you're yeah. you're you're always. I mean, now we we always have this. We've always been cautious about these things, but now we have to get to the point where, like, you're dealing with something that's twenty, thirty, forty years old, and something new comes around. Sometimes they are actually different and just content-wise, and that's complicated too because then you're really screwing it up. Yeah, for sure. Or are you? I don't know. I mean, sometimes there's two tracks to a movie that the filmmakers are all dead and you don't even know which one is right. Um, you mean you have clues, you have the print maybe or a print made of the time, but, you know, it's just another thing to worry about. Or you know, And we're all in this in the same way. We're trying to preserve these things in its original form but use modern technology to make them current. So there's that slippery slope of of where you draw a line. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the important thing is that there's not even. I mean, I was going to say something about you know a director or creator's agency over something maybe doesn't end now with digital media when it's released, right? That they can continue to alter yeah. things like yeah. you're talking about. You know, like and it differs from that of a dead director. You know, when right. We're working on those sorts of things. There aren't revisions exactly. We're not dealing with version things. They're not making a stereo mix versus the mono mix, you know. But I think the more important thing that Lee was getting at that I think a lot about and don't really have an answer for is balancing. Say you have a given master, you know it's correct, right? Um, But balancing the experience of viewing it, listening to it, whatever it is, um, with what would be historically accurate, you know, versus what modern ears would expect to hear and see, you know? And I think that is a really difficult problem because, especially in the sound world, if you, you know, have an old mono track from 1955 or something, uh, it 
never, there may well be information recorded well above 8,000 hertz on it, but that would not have been heard in the movie theater, most likely, right? Right. It would, yeah, generations lost. later, or even well, no, I mean, there's sonic a, fidelity there's, of the theater, right? Right. No, or there's a, there's fil- there's also filters applied and stuff in playback systems that also limit isn't the, the optical the negative optical track versus what ends up on the positive optical track what ends up going through the projector and what's going through the speakers is all going to change that anyway no matter and differently right. no matter what theory. I mean, you're there's in. A, there's degra- generational degradation and everything, but what I'm talking about is that those tracks were not designed or recorded in a way that intended for people to hear above that or below a hundred hertz or something well, like it's, that. Well, it's you know? a good example of that in the picture realm would be the, um, the, what is it called? The, uh, not the overscan, the, um, full frame or. Oh, you mean where like Academy, full Academy aspect ratio and then the cropping yeah, of the image? Yeah, where they, they overshoot the aspect and you see the boom and everything. Super 35? Unmatted. Yeah, unmatted, right. You right. know, yeah. so you've got like scenes because they, I, I guess they did that because, of all the generational reformats these days it's like you punch in to an image or with digital you can just simply reframe you know but back then they were doing that and then matting out for 185 or whatever like when i was in college like our college would get a string of 16 millimeter versions for mm. popular releases and i was the projectionist so it confused me when there would be like I was showing like rounders and, and there was like a scene where the boom was just traveling around <laughs> the actors and I was just like what the hell I was beside myself like like kind of looking around at nobody being like what yeah. a bunch of fuck ups and then I didn't realize you know the process of like well that's unmatted because 16 is different format when it yeah. went to video it gave that's them true more- you channel blow up the whole thing well, I remember uh, talking to Roman Polanski about Rosemary's Baby because the uh, the negative was matted at 185. And you know, once in a while you see that, but you don't. You Normally you see the top and the bottom, and then it's cropped out. And I asked him, I said, oh, do you remember matting this out? And he goes, of course I remember. He said, the reason I did it was because I didn't want anybody fucking up the aspect ratio. I wanted it to always be shown the same way. And if I matted it, they couldn't mess it up. Yeah. So, like, he was forward thinking with that, too. Um, but most films weren't done that way. Yeah, and the audio thing would be in terms of like as a frequency reproduction on playback and formats and things like that, it was a much narrower aspect, you know, and yet right. the capture of the original sources with by today's equipment could reveal a bunch of garbage in the top and bottom, you know, and... Or it, a bunch of good stuff. <laughs> that's right, true. I mean, yeah. seriously, that, that I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Like, there's plenty of masters we've transferred where, you know, it's there's a ton of beautiful sound. Like, <laughs> one of the first movies I worked on for uh, Restoration was Three Penny Opera and, you know, Pabst film from the 30s. And, like, there was all this beautiful high end. It was wow. amazing, you know? And then the question becomes, how much of that do you want to hear as a modern ear. Like, am I trying to reproduce, you know, am I slapping an academy curve on there and just dumping it all? Or do I let some of that through? You know, that's a subjective thing that, you know, blurs the line between conservation and preservation and restoration, you know? That's really a hard line to walk, which is what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I mean, we've been on the train for a while now, which is, it's it's a, it's a, a fiscal train of like, 
let's rescan movies. Let's see what else we can get out of them. That's you know, in a 4K, yeah. Present them in a way that that um, that no one has ever seen before. You know, you can you can see the aged wrinkles and such and such leads. You know, it's like there's more there. There's more there, which I think is is interesting and viable too. Like I, I'm a sucker for that. Like movies that you um, know faithfully, seeing you know like a, a like just a a richer scan and being like, yeah, I, I want to see you know more detail you know yeah um but it uh it gets weird fast if it's not being done by you know people who have a discerning sensibility you know yeah i i, I thought it was interesting the like when i was talking to david the first time we had worked on uh, a movie together which was Eraserhead, he you know the scale of video went from zero to 100 and usually, you like you program a grade right in the middle somewhere, or whatever. David had it down to like ten or twenty percent, and I kept saying, "You can't see anything." He goes, "That's the way it should look like." And he was very adamant that we didn't bring it up. And he was the whole. T- he stuck with what he wanted until he didn't want you to see any of that stuff in there. That wasn't the whole yeah. point. The point was that so no UHD release of Eraserhead. I, it could be UHD, but it just he just doesn't want that bottom area opened up for people to see inside. That was his whole point, and I'm yeah. sure he approaches things with sound a similar way. Yeah, and I think in terms of that bottom area, like, I I mean, I had a, a like, a, an experience like that, too. I remember working on, like, The Last Samurai and, like, having having uh, access to uh, the Fox Lot Store or whatever, and I, like, bought a copy of Die Hard, on the like double disc DVD or whatever and being like oh yeah I'm going to watch this and I grew up watching it on like TBS broadcasts you know pan and, and so scanned I, yeah pan and scanned but like ultra contrasty you know like and and people like the I feel like the the horror you know subsect of people always talk about the details, the less you can see into the shadows, the more scary it is. You know what I mean? Mm. And because of that whole fan base growing up with VHS, you get these ultra-contrasty, dark movies that you can't see any of the details. And then as you bring up that floor and you start seeing more light than maybe was either A, intended or just by happenstance what people just saw and experienced, it it seems less scary. It seems like it changes the mood. So I, I watched Die Hard and I feel like I just, I remember having a palpable feeling of like, man, this doesn't feel at all like what I remember the movie, my, my experience watching the movie initially was like. Now, for better, for worse, I'm not saying that like we need to faithfully follow what, that most people primarily experience this on TV, so that so we've got to re- right. reflect that. But at the same time, you you do experience the um, how these subtle differences create a uniform shift in the in the vibe, which is why you know people in your position engage creatives to sort of guide the way, you know. But at the same time, it's like you know with trends of the of the, of the day or 
as looks and mastering and UHD and all this other stuff where you can see can see more. It's like, well, let's try seeing more with this film. Let's try seeing more with this film. And you sort of lose sight of like some maybe some super important obvious things that are like we shouldn't have done that because it it destroys the DNA of that experience, you yeah. know? It's a slippery yeah. it's a very it's a very narrow line where you actually can deviate from and if you have the filmmaker you can do whatever you want. I've seen filmmakers change things radically and then you have to explain it to the person watching it why it's so different and they don't always want to believe it. They don't want to they don't want to hear it. Yeah, I've been on like both sides of that fence, right? Like seeing it happen and then of course like being on the other side where you you, you watch a Michael Mann film and you're like, "What?" Why does this look the way this does? Or, you know, like, this doesn't look at all like the the print, you know? Um, it feels like there's a ton of, pe- there's a ton of people online now, you know, with like YouTube channels and stuff that are now hyper-focused on that, you know? Do you, how ingratiated in that world are you in terms of like, on your radar? Sometimes it's unavoidable. I mean, you you know, I try not to read about it until somebody tells me I have to read about it. Yeah, and what are, do you have any like scenarios that have happened where you're like, wow? There's one that I've actually spoken about, you know, vocally over the years because I, you know, well, you know, I'm not infallible. I know I can, I've, can make a mistake, but you know, in one movie, it was a uh, Melville film that uh, I got a print that was sent by the owner of the film that said it was a, a print that was accurate with the color, and we matched it. And then I ran into a famous French cinematographer. Year later, Raoul Coutard, and he said, "I was friends. I was friends with Henry Decay, and that's not the colors he would choose." And it broke my heart. You know, I was like, "You know, we tried to do the best we can and do it right, but at the same time, we got it wrong." So, yeah. you know, I've righted that wrong recently with a new edition of it that's much more faithful to the color that it should be. But um, you know, those things hurt, and you feel like, "But you know, hopefully, we don't get to the point where those things happen very often." What did you? How did you write it? What what did you get as a as a, uh, as a well, new reference? <laughs> how I write it was um, the uh, owner did a film and they actually redid it using the correct reference and they got it right. So mm. that's how that wrong was right. But you know, it sat on the shelf in a in colors that well, I don't even know. You know, like color film fades over time, and unless you have a, a dye transfer print from the time period, you will never accurately know what color something's supposed to be unless you have Absolutely. a living living filmmaker that can tell. Um, yeah. So you're you're basically only as good as you know the material you have to work with if someone's not alive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's been similar things in my world. Like I remember, I started to pay attention to, like, not a lot, but just checking and doing the rounds of like chatter online because a lot of people. You got this collective group of people who've probably never met each other all chiming in on forums about things and most of it is there's a certain type of person who does that right and so it's a very OCD person to begin with but at the same time there's some incredibly valuable clues you know where it's sort of I've found it enlightening where you're like oh I had not considered that you know and that's definitely helped me in my job like I remember like um, fire walk with me. The scene where um, 
party land or I forget what it was termed, but you know, it was like the original mix. The the music is so hot and and the the dialogue is so sort they've subtitled it because it, the dialogue is so hard to hear, you know, and there was versions of it before I started working with Lynch when in that early days of like um DVD releases that they got stems and no one bothered to like Reference. So putting the subtitles was really a mistake because you weren't supposed to actually really know what they were saying. No, 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 no. Um, from from a strictly sonic point of view, the the point is the dialogue was supposed to be hard to hear. You know, it's the his, Lynch's whole thing was it's club. It's be loud like you can't really hear hear what they're saying. Like you can't make it out like so well or whatever. And um, and of course when stems were were taken and then spread out with center channel separation and everything, you know, it's, it would, you know, like obviously be any mixer's first reaction to be like balance it up so it's intelligible, you know what I right, mean? Right. But that was sort of the nexus of that scene is that the creator was trying to go against trend and make it hard to understand. It's the perfect example of the black level thing you're talking about. That's too dark. Like, the dialogue is too muffled. Yeah. You know, we can't understand it. And being like, this is what this is what the experience is like being in a club. This is what I'm going after. You right, know? and wouldn't yeah. you say that's kind of similar to the Robert Altman stuff in McCabe and Mrs. Miller where he did those scenes in the bar where, where right, you're not right. supposed to understand what they're saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. I was actually thinking about things that you immediately perceive as flaws. Right. Um, and then try to correct that maybe shouldn't be corrected. Right. And I was thinking about a time I was restoring a Godar flick, and there's this voiceover recorded by JLG himself, and he uh, is like on the mic, just eating the mic, and you can hear every little click and crackle and everything like that in it. And it was like, it was from an optical source, and I was kind of like, man, it could be, you know, dirt on the track or that kind of thing. It could be mouth clicks. And if it's one, I want to keep them. If it's the other, I want to get rid of them, right? Is this that scene from Alphaville? That's how I say no. Alphaville? Yeah. No. Uh, what movie was it? Oh, no, it was Alphaville. Yeah, totally. And so I was uh, working on it and just kind of like researching like online to, I use the internet like you as much as possible for getting this stuff. And it's definitely led me astray at times as well. Yeah. But that's another thing. Um, and like just by chance, um, a... Godard Scholar came in and was touring our office at the time. And I was like, hey, let me bounce this off you. Check this out. And he was like, oh, no, that is famously, he ate the mic there, intentionally wanted it to sound as clicky as possible and as sort of dirty and messed up as possible. And, uh, you know, I thus made the decision easy. Alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, made the well, decision see, easy. That story right there is, is beautiful and it's, it encapsulates everything because, number one, I was able to pick up on you know, what scene you're talking about, because when you started to describe it, that was my takeaway from, from that movie, is I, I, I famously think of that scene, and I think that of the sonic quality of his voice, and it's just like, you don't hear that so often yeah. in films. And that's yeah. why creators, like, there's, you know, a good creator is trying to show us something or, or let us hear something that we haven't heard before in this context. And it's, that's why we all love what we do, is because... Right. You're you're experiencing things that you would never have experienced through film, but um, 
I, I remember that as a takeaway and the the, the, the importance so cool. of oral history of actually interfacing with somebody and then very quickly you're doing that thing that I was talking about. You when somebody's like, Oh no, no, that's he was doing that on purpose, all of a sudden, boom, you become aligned to that idea of what that filmmaker was doing, no longer perceiving it as a flaw, but something to be celebrated, you know? Right. And and that's how it's done, you know? So bravo. Yeah, <laughs> good job, Brian. Good job. I got lucky on that one. Um, <laughs> got the I mean, when in doubt, the rule is don't fix it. You know, that's what we yes. go by yeah. all the time. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like we if, feel like I probably would not have it, fixed it. But it was something mess. that ticked like some boxes, you know, ticked my ears in a way that I was like, ooh, geez, that's weird. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I learned the when in doubt, don't fix it rule from fucking around with as an amateur with Photoshop. And you try to like just tweak up a few things and then the next morning you look at like some family photo and you're like, Whoa, what the what the fuck? Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't have red hair. It's the scene from from Seinfeld when I can't even remember the scene, but something is like inserted into a picture. It's, as like a family photo, but it looks so crazy bad, you know? Oh, it's when George cuts himself out of the background of the beach. <laughs> right. When he's like, yeah, anyway. That's the weird thing about um, filmmaking too, is like, you know, you get so ingratiated in the world and you're, as a creator, you're making all these decisions and then like an audience can sit back in two seconds and be like, well, that looks fucking fake. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a funny David story, though. We were talking about uh, when Mulholland Drive, we were discussing uh, in the color room with uh, it's a scene where the colors had like kind of raised up the curtains a little bit to be brighter. And you, they were the ladies were in bed together for the first time. And um, the colorist said something like, uh, oh, yeah, David, look at those curtains. They're, look at how beautiful the curtains are in HDR. And David goes, if they're looking at the curtains, they're looking at the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, I realize you you can make those curtains brighter, but that's not the point of the technology. Yeah, and that, this is another thing I learned from him in the audio world is like you have uh, sonically in a film, and I don't think it's really thought of that much as a re-recording mixer or sound designer, but you have the opportunity, and it's stylistically trend these days with that Henry Ford way of working where you point to different editors and get them to cover everything. Mm. So you have everything, and there's a, the opportunity to hear everything. But many, many people don't realize the sheer power of, of selective details because when you decide to play certain things and not play other things sonically, you're essentially creating sonic depth of field. And why we love all those old Panavision lenses that separate the background from the foreground. Or distort the sides or whatever. It is. Yeah. The equivalent in audio in that is like not covering certain things. You know, you might see cars in the background, but if you're if you're mixing them in, even at an appropriate level, you know, sometimes it's like it's more information that's detracting away from a, a unified single focus source that becomes an eye an idea, a sonic idea, a sonic focus, a son, you know, a way of just uh, attuning the listener, even carrying their their eye through a scene. You can do things by like selecting different things. I mean, I had I do like a sound class and you know do a scene as an example where there's background action, and as soon as you you know bring down that that principal actor's dialogue 
and play up that background action, your eye just is glued to that the entire scene, mm. you know? And it's yeah. it's very powerful stuff, super subtle, like almost new agey like ability to kind of guide and direct, you know, uh attention. It's crazy. What do you think about the sound design of uh, Sound of Metal? Did you have you have you heard yeah, that? Yeah. I like that movie a lot. Um, it's pretty interesting how it's become. It became its own thing, really, like the character. Well, I think. I mean, that's that's a great example of what I'm talking about because it's all. Um, it's just simply defining the 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 filmic world specifically, subjectively through the character, which all. If you talk to any sort of armchair appreciator of film sound, those are all the moments they're going to talk about. They're going to mm. talk about. Saving Private Ryan when mm, you know they right, go underwater. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all subjective shifts that are warped based on uh, a character's experience of the world. It's 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 illustrating that experience for the audience that you would have singularly. Because our 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 technology, our ears and everything, super flawed, super wired to our physiology. You know, as we get like nervous. You know, they they work differently. It's like the, a classic example, the conversation. He'd kill us if he got the chance, you know. He'd kill us if he got the chance, you know. Um, it's that you're, you're, the way your brain interprets audio. You think we're, you think you're walking through this, this life with like a, like a ultimate sense of, veracity like everything you hear and see is truth you know and it's just all being filtered and processed and warped and then you go back and revisit certain things and you're like oh my god that's not what he said at all you know like the sound of metal like what that character experienced like we all we all felt that because it's like wow could you imagine being so limited by that and the movie shows you what that what that experience is so yeah there's also i mean i was recently picking that movie apart and I found it really interesting that, I mean, obviously his experience of, you know, losing his hearing and whatnot is what you're talking about there with it being that perspective. Um, But the contrast and the nuance with which the rest of the movie is mixed is really startling because the world that they create sonically is so detailed and so precise and so sharp that it really accentuates the contrast between his, you know, hearing loss with what the world that they've created sounds like because it is like bright and present and like there's bugs flying around your head and there's yeah. a bird over here and there's wind in the grass and you can hear every damn blade, you know? It's right. Like so precise and beautiful. Like big, big mix. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, that probably more so than what I was just talking about. The con- the sense of contrast is, it. you can't just make a whole movie you know, about, well, first of all, you can't say can't ever because if you do, somebody will do it and it'll be great. <laughs> but um, but the contrast is something that's so rich and effective in films. And you, you, it's like you can't, you can't show darkness without light and all that jazz. Right. You know, it's like it's the yin and yang of all that stuff. Totally. And, yeah, uh, sure. but like last year I worked on this thing. It was a short film and shot super 16 and it was uh it was like stop motion and they were emulating like old film style so naturally they wanted the soundtrack to sound like an old optical soundtrack so it was like we thought about doing certain things like 
dumping it all to tape and everything like that. But I, I, I did just, that with a John Waters film where we had re-recorded music and I had to make it sound like 16. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've, I've done it like here and there, but it was hard to do with the whole mix. I did it with a couple of the orchestral mm-hmm. cues, you know, to, to give them um, a little like woe and flutter yep. kind of vibe. Um, but, but anyways, so I developed this recipe for, for the digitally for the dub. So it's like, you know, you talking about recipes before, you know, there's like, you need some of that harmonic saturation. You need, you need an EQ profile that matches, you know, that era. You need optical sound, you you know, like that sort of optical floor mm-hmm. noise, you know, of, um, of hiss and, and sort of crackle. You need this, that, that, and another thing. But what I found that was so striking was that the EQ profile that I ended up going with was so exaggerated. Like I, I got a few examples that like just hit me like, wow, that sounds that sounds really rich and warm. The the EQ profile was so rolled off, it was like flabbergasting to me. And it made me realize that when you roll off that stuff so much, but you add in the floor noise of hiss, it it reframes everything. It doesn't sound like it's necessarily rolled off or muffled because you have high-end information that's sort of tricking the brain. I was about to say, it's says, a trick well, for your brain, a, for sure. I've noticed that as well. It's yeah. a total... Mm. It's a total perspective yep. shift, but like the contrast there, I was just like, whoa. And then and then then having this sort of religious experience of bypassing it and being like, <laughs> whoa. It was literally like the sound of metal scenes. Because when when you bypass it, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, like there's all that stuff there, you know. It was wild to me. And it definitely set my brain in a new realm of like. It's just wild. Yeah, for sure. But think about it. Like a lot of your your role is you're you're looking and listening to some of these antiquated projects immediately with the bypass button off. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And therein lies the the challenge of doing your job is, is because you have to make sure that that's not taking away from the experience of the film, you know? Yeah, agreed. Well, this was great, Dean. Thanks for uh, yeah, talking sure. to us. It was yeah, a pleasure. Thanks, Dean. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, guys. <laughs>